Blog Talk Radio. edition of the Fight Network. This is our sports conversation. I'm Don Henderson, as always. We've got a guest all around the country to talk about sports tonight. Roy Cummings, of course, is in Tampa, Florida, and a lot of things happening down in the southwest right now. And, of course, our uh, 
Our anchor has moved from Atlanta, Georgia, back to the Philadelphia market. He's now going to be living outside of Philadelphia, Roger Hendler. Our executive producer is always Frank Carroll. And Frank likes to start with a dedication before we start the sports conversation. So give it to us, Frank. Yeah, tonight's uh, program is dedicated to uh, the gentleman who started the, uh, the whole program for us. Uh, on uh, next Tuesday, be the 11th uh, anniversary of his passing. It's Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll. Uh, Bob was uh, 47 at the, at the time of death. Uh, he was a, 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 a <clears throat> he was director of, uh, of uh, accreditation for the Sarasota uh, Sheriff's Office. Uh, he was a boxing enthusiast, and that's how we really got started. Uh, it was he, Aaron Jaco. And his brother and myself, and then uh, we brought in Benny Henderson out of uh, uh, Dallas, Texas, who was, at that time was the lead rock uh, writer for Doghouse Boxing. Um, uh, we just wanted to make sure that uh, we uh, honored Bob with uh, with that tonight because we won't be uh, won't be on the air on the 20th, but be on the 21st. But uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, everybody remembers him, and he was a tremendous uh, person, uh, a great uh, deputy and uh, a, a wonderful son. Amen Absolutely, Frank, no question about it. And uh, we knew the young man, obviously, not only from the program, but personally as well. And uh, it was a great loss to everybody when uh, when he passed away. Well, Roy Cummings, as we switch down to sports, the basketball season officially over. The National Hockey League season is officially over. And we had a little bit of a phenomenon last night. Roy, uh, Give me your explanations of what's happening in the world of hockey. <laughs> well, uh, what's happening in Las Vegas uh, has been happening for, you know, since the franchise was awarded. Um, the, the guy, the, the team there has, uh, the management <clears throat> team I'm talking about in particular, the ownership group, really, uh, really had, had it all figured out. Uh, did an exceptional job, just an exceptional job of scouting and preparing themselves uh, to, to join the league. And granted, the, uh, the rules were, you know, somewhat, you know, much more in their favor than they were uh, back when Tampa Bay came in, certainly more in their favor than when uh, Florida came in, uh, you know, more than a couple of decades ago. So, you know, they, they've done, but they've done a good job of taking advantage of those rules and building a, a really fine competitive team. Uh, at the same time, you know, they've had some challenges. You know, they, they plan to spend a year without their captain, Mark Stone, or a good part of the year, I should say. Um, uh, Aiden Hill was not their starting goalie at the beginning of the year. They were really, really challenged in net this year uh, when Robin Leonard got hurt early on in the season, uh, before the season even started, really. And and uh, so, so, you know, again, they did a great job of building a team, having depth, and then, uh, you know, finding a, a style of play that works for them. And you can't beat the crowd. I mean, I think hockey is one of those games where the crowd really, I think, makes an impact. It makes a difference. And uh, uh, they, they, it's, it's a show in, um, in Las Vegas, and they put on a show, uh, and the Golden Knights put on a show, and they really did last night. And uh, Florida was just uh, – they ran out of gas, guys. Um, they looked real – you know, look, Florida was – the best team in the league a year ago. They come in this year. They, uh, I think, they realize that it doesn't really matter where you finish as long as you're in the top eight somewhere. Uh, even better for you, maybe with the matchups, depending on you know where you're at. So, um, you know, they, I think they 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 kind of pace themselves, 
but then injuries started to get to him a little bit. And in my opinion, I think the biggest problem for Florida was that their goaltender, Sergei Bobrovsky, became the Bobrovsky that had everybody shaking their heads throughout most of this past season. Um, this guy, when he's on, he's as good a goalie as there is. But he really has a tendency to just kind of disappear uh, from that level of play, and he did it, you know, several times throughout the course of this uh, these playoffs, uh, in particular in, in this final series. Um, they couldn't go back to, to Leon, their uh, their backup, just couldn't do that. Uh, not down a, a game or two. You got to go with the guy that um, didn't necessarily get you there, but the guy that you're paying to get you there. And, and that was Bobrovsky, and I thought he he became rather ordinary in the in the finals. And then when you're when you're playing without Matthew Kachuk. Uh, who clearly, as we saw, was the heart and soul and uh, probably got, I don't know what the voting was, but he probably got some MVP votes as it is because without him, uh, Florida's not in the finals and it's uh, and obviously without him it's, it doesn't go five games. But, um, you know, they, uh, they just ran out of gas. And uh, when you run out of gas in the NHL uh, and the other teams uh, still firing on all cylinders, which Las Vegas was, you see some lopsided uh, – play at times and we certainly saw it last night so um but hey uh, congratulations to vegas uh, you know what once again uh the nhl leads the way they were the first you know major sports league to give las vegas a shot it's worked out tremendously well uh now you see the raiders there you'll probably see the a's there at some point uh be surprised if you don't see an nba team there at some point um, and it's all because the NHL uh, was the first to do it. Yet again, the NHL uh, leading the way for uh, in, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, guys. And uh, uh, So good for Las Vegas. Really proud of them. Love the team. Love the players. Love the way they play. And it was uh, it was really entertaining uh, series run for them all through the playoffs, uh, getting to the Stanley Cup. So they, they certainly earned it. Roy, several weeks ago, before I go to Roger in Atlanta, or not in Atlanta, now he's in Philadelphia, but before I go to Roger for a second, uh, we talked, the three of us, along with Frank, I think it was two or three weeks ago, uh, when I talked about the fact of how important a commissioner is in all sports. And unfortunately, uh, obviously, the National Football League, uh, the commissioner is great for the owners because he's making a lot of money and they're making a lot of money, and who cares about what rules he makes or doesn't make, doesn't make any difference. But... For the commissioners and everything else, now we're right down to the PGA and what happened this last week there. Commissioners are so important, and Bivin was so important there. He made the decision, if you're going to bring an expansion team and you're going to charge these people so much money for the team, you better give them an opportunity to at least be representative. He not only gave them a chance to be representative, he gave them a chance to win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, he did, and uh, and you know what? I, I, I once again, and, and I, I talk about this a lot. And one of these days, I'm going to put that list together of the things where the NHL kind of shows you the way. You're going to see, you're going to see a change in terms of expansion when baseball expands, and they will uh, here shortly. You're going to see a similar situation. And again, it's because if you're asking for a billion dollars in essence to, to join the league, you've got to make it worth their while. They can't spend ten years struggling. Uh, to be competitive uh, and, and therefore struggling to get fans interested in the game, especially in a non-traditional uh, market. Uh, you have got to make it immediately worth their while, and you've got to give them a chance to compete right away. And the payoff 
are moments like this. And again, it's not the first time the, the, the Knights were in the playoffs. I mean, they they made it to the Stanley Cup Finals, you know, for second year, first year. So that's the that's a great thing because it's a great story. It's a great story, and everybody, you know, in, at least in the game, if not nationally, uh, even the casual fans and the, and the casual media that, that don't pay attention to it are all but forced to pay attention because it's, you know, it's a phenomenon. It's like, well, how did this happen? Well, here's kind of how it happened. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I give Gary uh, Bettman a, a, a great deal of credit um, for, for figuring out that uh, these teams have to be rewarded for – you know, is having the faith to put their money into the league. Um, NHL teams make money now. There was a time, you know, not that long ago when a good chunk of them were, were losing money and losing big. But they make money now because the games are extremely uh, well uh, followed in their markets. Uh, the TV contracts are good. And uh, and the marketing, you know, the marketing of the, the franchises is good. So uh, Gary Bettman, again, he took a chance. Uh, on the whole Vegas thing, um, but uh, you know now look, <laughs> there's, there's betting everywhere. I mean, every team's got you know some kind of betting thing, and every league's got you know is uh, is right there. You know, got a, got an agreement with a, a betting site, and because uh, it's going to bring in more money and more interest to the games, and that's not a bad thing. So, yeah, you're right, Gary Bettman. Uh, he, did, he he did a really good thing, and uh, obviously the National Football League followed suit. And, I wouldn't be surprised at all if baseball does the same at some point. Well, the New York Yankees and the New York Mets are about to get started. Rain delay in our area here in the Northeast, and uh, a lot of rain along the coast and over New York, and they're just getting ready to tip things off over there. But, Roger, you and I have been NBA basketball fans for a long time, worked with the 76ers myself for a lot of time and a lot of years. I can't say the same thing about the NBA. I thought their championship game was terrible. I commend Denver. First time in, what, 49 years that they won a uh, NBA championship. But the game was not good. Uh, I mean, other than the fact that Denver won it and the way they played and the way the tournaments, the trophies were passed out were excellent. But the rest of it, you can have it. Your thoughts. Well, I'm with you, and uh, just to follow up, uh, Roy was alluding to with Gary Bettman. As I recall, didn't Gary Bettman come out of the NBA as one of the deputy commissioners when he went to the NHL? Yeah, he did. You're right about that. You're absolutely right. And uh, just think uh, what he might have done. They picked the wrong guy. You're exactly right. Okay. <laughs> That's my point. If he had stayed, the NBA would be a lot better than it is today. In my it couldn't opinion. be worse. No, I know. But, uh, no, you're exactly right, Don. It's, it's, uh, it, it, I was glad to see Denver win. Uh, but uh, the, just the, the whole uh, series – uh, you know, it's it, it just it's not what it used to be. And, you know, you could always say, well, it never will be. And that's true. But then you look at the NHL and the way like Roy, you have uh, wonderfully uh, the uh, stated it, the way they have developed that league has developed. And you look at the uh, NBA. Yeah, more international China and everything else. But uh, not uh, what the uh, NHL is as far as it goes in the uh, in the USA, in my opinion. Roy, five players existing from the original team that won the Stanley Cup last night. Uh, 
Uh, also, that's uh, that's quite a statement, too, when you talk about the short period of time that's been in existence. Five teams from the original picks uh, were skating with a cup last night. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, again, that's uh, that's an indication of, of the, the great job that uh, the group there has done in terms of scouting and building their team. Look, they got – they caught a couple of breaks. A guy like, you know, Jonathan Marcheseau was a Tampa Bay Lightning player that uh, Tampa didn't quite maybe maybe read well enough. Let him get away to Florida. Florida let him get away in the expansion draft, and uh, Vegas wisely just jumped right on top of him, saw the potential there. Mark Stone's another guy, and um, yeah, Alex Petrangelo. I mean, again, they benefited greatly from uh, a different kind of system in terms of how you build the team. Uh, you know, the Lightning were getting uh, most teams' 18th and 19th best player uh, when they had an expansion draft. In uh, in Vegas, they were getting the, the 8th, 9th, and 10th best player in some cases. So, um, And a lot of those guys were young players. And, they, they again, they built it right. So, yeah, again, it's just a matter of, uh, as it is with any team, really. I mean, whether you're established or not, it's a matter of, you know, building it right, and uh, and Vegas has clearly done that because they have been competitive since they came into the league. Uh, they've had their share of, uh, you know, adversity that they, they've had to deal with. Uh, they haven't always, you know, haven't succeeded consistently, but uh, for the most part, they've been right there, and they have been one of the best teams in the West, and, um, and now they're the best team in the NHL, and uh, I think they're a model, honestly. I, I think other teams could – if they could do it, you know, look at their model and say, okay, this is this is how you not just build a team, but this is how you play it. Um, you know, they've got goal scorers, obviously, but they've got a lot of grit too. And uh, uh, you know, defense. They also can move had the, the luxury of getting a great opportunity to get a goaltender at the outset, and that's something you very seldom get, or at least you almost never got the way it was before. Absolutely, yes, and, and that then that's different now. Uh, there, there's so much good goaltending in the league that there's, you know, there's five or six backups who are worthy of being starters somewhere. And yes, they did benefit from that. But you know what? Last night, Aiden Hill wasn't that guy. Aiden Hill was a guy who they, you know, they 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 had to pick up, and because they've had some issues in that position uh, with health, and uh, uh, this is a guy that they picked up and uh, and said, hey, here here we go. Now, you know, they, they also added Jonathan Quick, you know, at the end of the year. So um, smart move on their part. They they were they they knew. <laughs> That, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to need a goaltender here. And if Aiden Hill isn't up to the task, I mean, this is a guy, he set a record last night, Aiden Hill, first goalie in NHL history to win 10 playoff games after not playing in the first round of the, of, of the playoffs. So, um, so you know, quite, quite an accomplishment there by him. But Vegas was prepared if uh, Aiden Hill wasn't quite ready. Goaltending is such a big part of the playoffs. We all know, we all know that. And, uh, they knew it as well, so that's why they went out and got a, got Jonathan Quick from a you know from a rival right there in their own division, much less their conference. So again, they made uh, they made things happen, and uh, made it happen in uh, in their favor. Roger, fourteenth uh, of June, and we're looking at baseball. Verlander's pitching for the Mets tonight. Uh, Scherzer pitched last night, has had uh, absolutely no success whatsoever. Verlander has not had a great deal more success. The Mets are struggling, struggling, struggling. Whether Buck can uh, right the ship uh, is going to be very questionable. Your thoughts right now about with the Braves just running away with things, the National League East? Well, I read an article today. Uh, you probably saw it. Uh, I probably was in the post that uh, the, uh, the the Mets may not even make the playoffs. 
the way things are going. They started that last night on the game. They they talked about the fact that that's why you're right. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean the uh, with all the money that was spent and and uh, the money that Steve Cohen has, one of the richest, if not the richest, uh, owner in Major League Baseball, and that not to perform. And I think that Buck Showalter is a terrific manager. But uh, you just you when non when uh, expected performers are not performing, and you got two starting pitchers that you spent a lot of money uh, on, and they're not doing the job, you're in trouble. I mean, that's the bottom line. And, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see whether they can turn it around. If, like you and I were saying, Don Frank, the Phillies are up and down. One, they win one, lose, lose one. And they're right around that 500 mark. But uh, they had a big win last night at Arizona, and Arizona is one of the surprise teams. Uh, in the uh, in the league, number one, and especially out in the, uh, the Western Division, I mean, in the uh, National League, they really are looking good. Roy, you can spend all this money, uh, but it doesn't necessarily put a, a W in the win column. And we saw Scherzer last night, who is re- he got a five-one lead, and in the last two games that he's pitched, he's had a big lead, could hold it, and the Mets have lost the games. At the same time. Uh, you know, you got to give Buck Waller, Buck Showalter, a lot of credit. Even last year, at the end of the year, when he was first place, that went into Atlanta, he had everybody lined up to pitch. He had Legrand lined up to pitch. He had Scherzer lined up to pitch in that three-game series coming down to the next to last series to take over first place, and none of them won. Braves stole the series and swept the New York Mets, and now we're seeing the same thing again this year. His big pitchers can't do anything. Yeah, you're right. Uh, they have really, you, know, you might want to say, let them down. I mean, you know, here's, to me, this is the thing. And let's not forget that a year ago, something very similar was going on in this very same division. And uh, the Phillies were kind of where the Mets are now, and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of hope for them. But uh, So a lot can change. It's still an awful lot of baseball to play. Um, but, uh, you know, almost two-thirds of the season left to play. But uh, Max Scherzer... Uh, Justin Verlander have to start pitching better. They've got to get uh, Pete Alonso healthy. Uh, Francisco Lindor has got to be Francisco Lindor. Um, they've got to get a little bit more out of the catcher Alvarez. I mean, they, they put that guy in, a, in an important position. Um, they've just got to start playing better baseball. And a lot has gone against the Mets here. A lot of it's their own doing. I mean, you know, Scherzer gets suspended, so you lose, you lose him for 10 games. That hurts. Uh, Alonso's hurt. That obviously hurts. Um, you know, they've, they've just had some issues, and they haven't been able to deal with them. Now, you know, I'm not a fan of the way they built the team, though. I would not have spent the money on Verlander. I, I think that was a, a grandstand move. It was unnecessary. At his age, I'm not giving a contract like that to anybody. Um, and I think what they've failed to do in the Mets system is the, I think they've failed to develop players uh, that are ready to step up and and be a part of that organization in, in a high in, you know in a, in an important role. Um, you're seeing almost every other team in the league bringing rookies up that are impact rookies. Um, you know, look at Arizona, and uh, I mean they're certainly doing it on the on the pitching mound, uh, on the field, you know, in the in the back gate and everything else. So uh, it's it's happening. Uh, the Mets just haven't done it. Uh, they got a couple of kids, you know, that can play third base for them. Um, but what they need is a couple of kids to come up and pitch, and the closest they've got to something like that is uh, Tyler McGill, and he's just, you know, he's just another guy. 
So uh, there, I think I think they've gone about it the wrong way in terms of building a contender, especially in that division, because uh, you know the young players are going to are come up and they're going to produce speed, and, and and that's something that the Mets don't have much of. Uh, and the guys that, that do have it, uh, you know, you know, like Starling Marte. I mean, now he's a he's almost a platoon guy. Uh, you see Sam out there playing as much as he is. So uh, I think they've kind of missed the mark here in, in how they built the team. And uh, I'm not really all that surprised that it hasn't gone that greatly in their favor. Well, the bad part is they gave Lindor all that money, and he said he's 200. It's very similar to what Turner's doing with the Phillies, but. Roger, the Phillies had a one-two punch going into the playoffs to get to the World Series last year, but their one-two punch has been very inconsistent. Again, last night they had a, a big win, but they scored a lot of runs. But at the same time, they win three games, they lose four. They win four games, they lose three. Uh, right. And uh, I'll tell you, I saw some in a game last night that I've never seen in the history of my life. I've been watching baseball 100 years. I've never seen it. a fly ball right behind shortstop. Runners on first and third, one out. <laughs> and the Phillies catcher is on third base, Rilamuto, and the left fielder catches the ball, turns his back to the home plate, starts to walk, takes two steps out toward the outfield. Then he realizes, hey, wait a minute, there's only one or two outs here, and Rilamuto <laughs> scores from third base without all, not even a throw. Yeah, well, there was another, another interesting play last night, too. Uh, you know, um, uh, Cody uh, thought that he thought the ball was out of the ballpark and it was a foul ball and he's making the home run uh, run and uh you know it 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 didn't it didn't work i mean he uh he had to come back and and start all over again so i think it was clearly a foul ball i mean they showed it at least five times before they made it kind of ruling it was it was fouled by two or three feet yeah but at least he had the uh the fun of uh, doing the uh, the uh, home run trot, so to speak, I guess. Half, so half either way. the fun or the embarrassment. One or the other was yeah. fun, that is. <laughs> Roy, thank you very much. Great talking hockey with you tonight. Great talking sports with you as always. Thanks so much for being with us as the first half hour dies away. Pleasure is always mine, guys. Thanks for having Have me. A Have a great week, week, Roy. You too. Thanks, thank Roy. you. Doug Fernandez, one of the great columnists in the country right now, and he works for the uh, – Sarasota Herald, and, and uh, Doug and I have been good friends for years. He was his column. Uh, the one thing we were really going to get together last week, but the paper had their uh, major awards ceremony, so he couldn't be on with us last week. He was going to be here to tell us how, in the NBA, the Boston Celtics became the first team to be three games down and come back and win. Now, Doug, I, I know that you have on the tip of your tongue the answer to what happened to a 20-point loss at home in Game 7? Well, I think it just shows you how why it's never been done before, why it's so <laughs> damn tough to win four in a row. I mean, to win three in a row, listen, if you had w- watched game, game 6 and the way they came back, you think, I thought, uh, that they'd come in that seventh game just flying high, and I thought they'd have more emotion and energy than the Heat, and I was completely wrong. And, uh, you know, Cedric Maxwell, who was played on the Celtics teams of the 80s, and he's a broadcaster now, basically he, he said they peed their pants. Basically, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, the moment was too big for them. And, you know, when you look at that team, they were, they were railed on by Charles Barkley, by Shaq, by everybody, basically saying they don't have an offense. All they do is hoist up three-pointers 
they, they play hero ball, as Shaq says. You know, somebody comes to the rescue and hits a game-winning shot. That's hero ball. But they don't pass the ball. They, they depended on three-pointers. They missed their first 11 three-pointers in that seventh game. So you're thinking, okay, let's try to work for an easy basket. Let's try to get our confidence going. No, they still kept on hoisting them up there. And if they don't hit the threes, they don't have an answer. Uh, very disappointing. Uh, I think you're going to see some changes in the offseason. You know, Brown wants one of these mega deals, which is like 30% of a team's salary cap. And I'm sorry, he's just not that complete a ball player to get $200 million, $300 million over the life of a contract. I mean, you saw the guy. He dribbled the ball off his knee more than he did on the floor. I mean, Tatum was hurt. Uh, other guys stepped up in past games. If you look at a guy like Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, if Michael had an off game or whatever and he never did, Scotty always was there to pick him up and be the second banana. And this was Brown's chance to show in a game seven situation, you know, everybody watching that, hey, if Tatum is injured and hurt, I can carry the load. And he was terrible. And uh, you're going to see some changes in the offseason. I wouldn't be surprised if they even try to deal Brown and try to get some draft picks because it was obvious that they need help besides just those two guys. They need more of a bench president. They need more of a guy down, down low. Even though they don't play pivot ball anymore in the NBA, I still think you need that banger. Uh, but they don't have that. And they're a very multi, a one-dimensional team. And what you saw was in the game seven. It was a pathetic performance. And uh, I know I'm going on here, but the Celtics have had a lot of game sevens in their history. This was one of their worst, if not the worst. Doug Fernandez, our special guest this 50, 20 minutes. And uh, before we uh, get out of the NBA, let's go to Roger Hendler in Philadelphia because Roger has been following the – NBA, uh, quite honestly, Doug, since uh, the old Philadelphia Warriors. So we're, we're, in, the, we're in the same ballpark, Roger. Yeah, we sure are. Uh, Doug, uh, you probably saw last night, I think it was, on uh, they had the 30-30 about uh, Bill Walton and uh, Larry Bird. and, and uh, that, oh. that, that was a great, great show. I mean, it really was and brought back a lot of great memories. But we talked about this a little earlier about – uh, the NBA, what, what do you think, what do the Sixers uh, need to do uh, to get over the hump? And would you bring uh, James Harden back if, uh, if you were at the controls? I wouldn't. Uh, I, I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would. I mean, he's getting kind of long in the truth. But I think Philadelphia, you know, the Celtics had a pass to the finals, and one of them was they were taking on teams that maybe weren't 100%. And uh, that's why everybody in Boston – had this ticketed for a championship or at least a finals appearance. Uh, you know, Philadelphia, I, I don't know. I mean, I go back, uh, I'm, I'm 61, so the Philadelphia teams I remember were some of the greatest uh, rivalries, the Celtics 80, uh, 76ers in the 80s, when you had Mo right. Cheeks and Andrew Toney. I mean, the reason the Celtics got Dennis Johnson was because nobody could guard Andrew Toney. So that's the reason they got Dennis Johnson in one of the most lopsided trades in history for Rick Roby, I might add. But, uh, you know, that's the reason they got it. I, I love that basketball because I'm a purist. And I like right. the, the idea is to get the ball close to the rim, right, for a high-percentage shot. The closer you get, the more likely you are to sink it. Now it's the exact opposite. You see guys drive the lane, and they have a, 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 a sure pass to two points, and they kick it back out for a three-pointer. It makes no sense. And if you talk to guys like Bob Ryan or old-timers, you know, they don't like the way the game is, is, is being played right now. It's AAU ball. It's just hoisted up, and it doesn't seem like these guys take losing that badly. I think their fans take the losses more hard than these players do. I don't think it really it burns 
Like, it, it was a job for Larry Bird. That was their job was to win and win championships. I don't think these guys have the same attitude as they did 30, 40 years ago. That's partner, when I was broadcasting with the 76ers, Sonny Hill, and Sonny talked over and over and over again that you get to the foul line or in, it's a layup. If you're a, if you're a pro basketball player and you get to the foul line or in, you know, it's a, it's a tee shot. It's just up there, put it in. They get there, as you said, and they throw it back out for a 18, 20-foot, 25-foot shot. doesn't make any sense. How about None. the championship game, Doug? Uh, Denver, I, I thought it was one of the worst NBA championship games I ever saw. Well, it just shows you how dominant uh, Denver is, and it shows you how dominant when you have a big man. And I mean, listen, we're watching one of the best big men to come along in quite a while. I mean, this guy is complete, and uh, I just like the way the offense – goes through him i mean you never see an offense go through a guy that big but uh you know i mean the celtics not to get back on the celtics again another big thing was their head coach they made a mistake not giving this guy help not hiring a veteran assistant out of the gate to help this guy because it was clear that he was out coached and by eric spoiled in, in miami he was out coached pretty much everywhere because he hasn't had that experience, and they didn't. It was only him on the bench. They had no re, backup, no assistant coach to tell him, "Hey, Joe, I think you ought to try this." And they were lost. The guy never called timeouts because he didn't know what to tell the players. And I think in Boston, anyway, there was some dissension in the locker room about whether the players really thought this guy could lead them to victory. I think there was some serious doubts about his coaching chops, and I think there was a little dissension in the locker room that maybe didn't get out. Uh, but there were some problems with that team, and I think one of it is maturity and leadership. They don't have any. Roger? Yeah, my, uh, I just saw the uh, uh, announcement on uh, ESPN, uh, Doug, that the uh, Hawks uh, brought on a couple of new coaches uh, to their staff, and one of them is Mike Bray, the former coach at uh, Notre Dame. So I think that's a perfect example of what you were alluding to, with the Celtics that they needed to get some experience uh, on that bench with a uh, young coach. And it looks like uh, the, the Hawks are doing exactly what uh, you had said. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's not reinventing the wheel, but if you have a, a guy who's never in a big time game and you don't have anybody, so, so he, listen, every major league manager has a bench coach, right? right? And that's, that's baseball. One of the slowest moving games there is. In a game of basketball where you're going to make split-second decisions, I think you've got to have that, that veteran coach. This guy's never been through the wars like this. And I think it was a disservice by Stevens not to hire somebody. They hired Hill uh, recently, one of the uh, most, uh, I guess, well-respected assistant coaches. They just hired him to, to, to help uh, Manzula. But uh, I, don't, listen, I don't like the way the game is played. It's AAU ball, right? All you do mm-hmm. is play 30 games in a, in a day. If you lose one game, it's like, okay, let's move on to the next one. And I think these guys have that mentality. It's like, hey, if we lose the game, it's no big deal. There'll be another one. Well, when there's only a seven-game series, to lose a game is a big deal. And I don't think these guys have, have the same focus as the old-time players did. I think a lot of it is, is it more concerned that, that I make NBA first team or second team? Me, 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 not so much the team. It's like, what have I done this year? So, but that's, so that's, that, that's the era we live in, guys. It's like that in every oh, sport. It is. You know? Doug yeah. Fernandez, our guest this this segment, and Doug, let me two points I'd like to bring up. One, I don't know how you officiate the game, number one. And you talked about the dominance, and I agree with you, the dominance of the big man in the middle was overpowered. But, boy, if you just push everybody away, 
I mean, there, there's never any fouls called. You just knock everybody down. It does. How can you officiate a game like that? Well, look at what game was it? Was it the Celtics series? Or what? There were only two free throw shots. The first free throw was not until the third quarter. But what does that right. tell you? All they're doing is host, hoisting up threes. Nobody's rebounding. That's a long rebound. So there's no physical contact where there would be a foul called. All they're doing is hoisting up long, long-range jumpers. And that's all they work on in practice. I mean, that's, I mean, most of these guys don't have a mid-range game. I, I mean, you know, you pull up for a 15-foot open shot, these guys should bang it home every time. Very few guys have a mid-range game. They don't work at it. They're working at the long-range three-point game. And basketball is a beautiful game like baseball when it's, all, the, all the facets and aspects are used, like hit and run in baseball or bunting or moving guys over. You don't see that much anymore in baseball. They're all waiting for the home run. And I think in basketball, pivot moves, you know, like uh, up and under moves, the hook shot. The hook shot is the only shot that you, you can't block. And they don't teach that anymore because no, it's, only, it's only right. two points. It's only two points. I mean, it's only two points. But uh, I sound like an old man, get off my lawn. But maybe I am. <laughs> I'm 61 now, you know? Well, hey, you're Bill Bradley's got a little documentary coming out. In fact, it's uh, next three nights. It's going to be shown over in New York. Uh, it's probably I don't know what uh, TV station is finally going to pick it up. But uh, he's had tremendous coverage on it. And he talks about the championship team and, uh, you know, and he said, you know, the, the one thing you have to remember is when you play basketball, you don't worry about shooting. You worry about scoring. You want to be able to, you know, you, you don't worry about where you're going to take You've got to know when you get that ball, you're going to shoot it and you're going to score. You're, you're not going to score from 26 feet away. You're going to score from where you're in a range run by plays. Uh, I'm really waiting to see this documentary. I think it's going to be terrific. But I don't know. Well, I, I, just I'll, I'll can't, I can't watch the NBA. Well, listen, if, if, if it used to be about finding the best shot, using all five guys, pass right. the ball. The Celtics used to break a fast break. The ball would never touch the ground. It would be three passes, bang, 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 and the ball's down the other end for a basket. But these guys, they're all situated around the three-point line. You don't see anybody down low calling for the ball because those ISO plays, just they don't use them anymore. These guys don't have pivot moves. Remember Kevin McHale? Kevin McHale came out of Minnesota after four years, by the way. Uh, and he had a developed game. His game was completely developed. And now all you see guys come into the NBA, their game isn't developed because all they work on is that long-distance shooting. And it's not going to change, guys. I mean, the three-point line was instituted as sort of a gimmick, right? I mean, remember the first few years, Chris Ford hit the first three-pointer in history for the Celtics. But they, it wasn't used that much. Those finals games in the early 80s, they, they were all inside. And you saw it getting away from that more and more. And what you have is what you have now. Uh, well, Doug, it also was the fact of going down to the last minute or minute and a half of the game. They thought that it would eliminate to a degree the automatic fouling, which is terrible. It's, it's in all basketball. Uh, you're down five points, so you just grab a guy and uh, go to the foul line. And, you know, I, I never agreed with that from the beginning. It's a, I think it's a weakness of the game. Uh, just grab people. Roger, you're up. Yeah, I was just going to uh, follow up about the with the traditional basketball, uh, the the old give and go. Okay, the uh, you know the I love that play, and uh, that's what I like about women's basketball, Doug. It is still a, a traditional type of game. I think if you watch any woman's sport, they play fundamentally sound because listen, 
they're, they're, they're not the you know, the fact is they're not the great great athletes. They don't soar through the air like the guys do. Uh, so they have to depend on fundamentals. And you're right, they they look for the best shot, even though three point shooting is is, is paramount in, in, in women's basketball. But they play fundamentally sound, sounder than the men do. The men rely on just their talent, right? It's like I don't have to worry yeah. about fundamentals. I got the talent here. Well, so a lot of times that talent is shown to be insufficient, and the girls really know how to play. Sometimes it's better to watch the girls play than the guys. You get a truer sense of the sport, I think, when the girls play than the guys. Hey, Doug amen. Fernandez, our special guest this segment, and Doug, as you can tell by our dialogue, is a Bostonian. Uh, and, of course, he <laughs> grew up with the game the way we all grew up with the game. And uh, I would think we're ever going to see it again, Doug. I think the, the game has passed us by. I think, I think in any sport, people, people go on YouTube to watch old games. I do. I mean, any NBA game, I go in there to watch game six of the, 80, of the 81 finals between the Celtics and, 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 and the 76ers, the Eastern Conference finals, you know, where the Celtics came back and then they won game seven, uh, you know, when uh, they inbounded the ball and it came off the backboard and they won. And, and, and I, 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 I watch those games and I read the comments of the people who watch them too on YouTube, and they're the same as me. It's like, Boy, this is the way basketball used to be. This is the way I loved it. These guys didn't like each other, and it showed. I want opponents to hate each other. The Yankees, Red Sox. I don't want guys to be shaking before, you know, shaking their hands before the game, or, or patting <laughs> each other on the bat after the game. I want you to want to kill this guy. But those days are gone. And they yeah. all the same agents. They all have the same financial advisors. They're not going to be like that with each other. It's just not the case anymore. Roger. No, it's a shame, Doug. It really is, and uh, they, they, it, and that irritates me to no end. You know, when you get the first base, and the two guys are, uh, you know, tapping each other on the shoulder, you know, or when they make a play at second base, same thing. I mean, it, it. Uh, you and I grew up where it was competitive, and uh, the you, you did not, you weren't buddy buddy with uh with these other guys and you're exactly right it's because they have the same agents and they have the same uh, uh financial guys and uh it's all about me and and uh, and i think uh, joel Embiid uh Embiid was was a perfect example about uh you know being the mvp okay uh yeah wouldn't it be nice to win a championship but number one i'm the uh, league mvp after a while though and you talk to any kind of athlete they get in it at first maybe they want personal glory they want statistics but after a while of not winning that that is supplanted by i just want to win a title you know i don't care if i score 10 points or 20 points or hit 50 home runs or whatever i just want to win i'm sick of losing and after a while, those individual accomplishments, they, they fade if you're always going home at the end of the season, a loser. After a while, it becomes more of a, you know, what's going to be remembered more after I retire? What I hit in 19-whatever or how many championships I won? It always counts how many pelts you have on the wall. And I think that's why Tom Brady will always be ranked near the top, if not the top of quarterbacks, because how many championships he won? Dan Marino? Yes. Uh, sorry, Dan, you got in one Super Bowl and you got blown out by the 49ers. So it's like you don't really put Marino in the same company as maybe a John Elway who won two titles. It's just the way athletes are judged, you know, uh, over time anyway. Doug, uh, let's stay with football for a second. Can Bill Belichick, uh, he's now going uh, two and a half, almost three years, uh, really strongly got into the playoffs. But uh, 
not really a, uh, a threat to win anything. Uh, can he turn it around? Uh, no, I think right now, now that you saw Aaron Rodgers join the Jets, I think the Patriots will be looking up at teams now. Listen, they had their run. You will never see a 20-year run like that ever again, where it's the same head coach and the same quarterback with different players shuffling in and out, and they still won titles. You won't see that kind of marriage again. And I think you see right now what Tom Brady meant to Bill Belichick and the Patriots. I mean, it just wasn't him. They had guys like Vrabel and and tough competitors. But it just shows you, if you don't have a superior quarterback, uh, he's not going to be able to lift up the talent around him. Brady made the guys around him better because he was so good. Now that they have Mac Jones, I mean, the jury is still out on him. I think the Patriots will give him one more year. But uh, he better show improvement under Bill O'Brien. You know, they had Matt Patricia. You know, Belichick asked him to be offensive coordinator. He was never done that, that before. It was a favor to him. He's a defensive guy. And, you know, he got, he got crapped on because the team didn't progress and, and Jones regressed. Well, he was never an offensive guy, and he was doing Belichick a favor. Now that they got Bill O'Brien, who was down with Saban, it was coach at BC, was over with the Texans, he's back as the, as the offensive coordinator. So I'm willing to give him one more year with this guy who knows offense. Uh, but I'm telling you, they're going to pull the cord on this guy if, if he doesn't improve this year and stop being a whiner and a guy who complains. And he was, you know, he was hit up by like three or four personal fouls, you know, doing stuff that a quarterback shouldn't be doing to other guys, you know. Uh, and, and that's not good. So the jury is still out on him definitely. But uh, to answer your question in a long-winded way, Don, I don't think, uh, I don't think the Patriots are going to contend for for a few more years. Their time is done. They had a great run, but now it's somebody else's turn in that division, I think. Roger? Well, do you think that uh, Belichick might retire if uh, things uh, keep on going the way they're going, Doug? Well, you know, Bill Belichick, the coach, is still good. Bill Belichick, the guy who picks talent, including free agents, he's misfired a lot. If you look at some of the guys, he's had a hand in picking. You know, Henry Smith, the tight ends they got for this, these guys got millions of dollars. They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. His track record of drafting wide receivers. I mean, that's been poor. So if you look at some of the guys that have made that team go over the past, it was free. It was free agents. It was bringing in somebody else's team's guy and making it work. Not going out and picking out of college and developing that. He's had a really bad track record with that. I don't think Belichick's ready to retire. He, he all he is is a football guy. I mean, that's all he knows. Uh, so, but I think he needs to see progress at the quarterback position. I think he needs to see that my, maybe one or two years I'll be back in the championship game maybe with this guy. You know, he has to think that he has a chance with his quarterback, and I think right now he doesn't know uh, this guy Jones. I, I think we need to see him this year, one more year. He, he regressed last year. The second year of a quarterback is, is key, right? That's where they make the most growth, yes. and he took a step back. So that's kind of scary yeah. a little bit. Doug, let me sum it up right there. Uh, we're obviously very close to watching, uh, you know, a, a team in Tampa because uh, what, a, we, what a run they had, even with Brady and so forth. Uh, how, do you, how do you think, uh, are they going to be able to rebuild it up to be competitive this year, or are they going to be at the bottom of the barrel? Uh, I, I, that, that, you know, they got, uh, they got the, uh, what's his face? Uh, I thought it was a high, I thought it was a high reward low-risk deal to sign Maynard to a one-year deal. Right. I, I think he's playing, for, he's playing for his future, right? So uh, they're not paying him a lot of money quarter, quarterback-wise. Uh, if this guy comes out and has a great year and they re-sign him, 
he's still at, at an age where he can contribute. If he doesn't, okay, one, you lost year, but you, you get rid of him, and it's not really much of a loss. I think it's like any quarterback. Don't it? You need to be surrounded. He needs to find time to throw. His guys need to get open. They need to catch the ball. I mean, football is the most team-dependent sport there is. You know, if you have one guy on a breakdown on a play, it's probably not going to work. So he needs the guys around him to be on the same sort of level of talent. So, I mean, listen, they need a running back, right? They got rid of Fournette. I mean, he was their guy. But, you know, they weren't as dominating this, yeah, this past year because their offensive line wasn't as dominating. That's the key, too. I don't know, Don. I think the jury's out on them. With a new quarterback, i, I got to wait and see on them. All right, Doug, one, last, one last question before you go. Mike Cole said he'd buy. Uh, he'll be with us in the next segment. But I just wanted to give you a chance because uh, you, you've been very close to Dick Vitale over the last 15 or 20 years, and uh, you've written so many great, great columns about the things that he's done. Uh, he's a one-man show for cancer. Uh, and I want to give a, a, a little publicity to both you and to Dick Vitale. Not that Dick needs any publicity, but what a job he did again this year. Uh, the $12 million mark again. It's unbelievable in Sarasota, Florida. I, I, uh, you, you, you took the words right out of my mouth, Don. To raise $12 million in New York or L.A. or Chicago or wherever, not that big of a deal. But to raise $12 million in one night in Sarasota, Florida, that is fantastic. And that goes to speak to Dick's passion for this. People are going to remember him more for this than as a broadcaster, which is saying something. His legacy will be helping cancer victims. Do you realize that since the V Foundation, I went to go watch his speech again, Galvano's speech, where basically he basically said we're going to start the V Foundation uh, tonight. Or the, you know, they've raised since 1993 $330 million for cancer. And Vital has contributed about 60 or $70 million of that through his gala. And to think about the gala that started when he lived at TPC, it was at his house the first couple of games. It was no big right. deal. There was just a bunch of, wow. And it graduated, and now it's at the Ritz-Carlton, and it's the big event of the year celebrity-wise. And next year there's going to be Derek Jeter down here. Jim Kelly is the honoree, uh, you know, because he battled yeah. cancer himself. So we, 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 have a, uh, we have a lineup that is uh, pretty much grade A next year. But, uh, you know, the thing about Dick Vitale is every year he raises money, he wants to top it the next year. Like he, he, he made $11 million last year. He made 12 for this year. What's he going to shoot for? Fifteen million next year? I mean, Jeff Bennett kicked it, kicked in a million dollars. The owner of the Lightning, he kicked in a million dollars. Uh, a lot of people made big time donations. And uh, but how? I, I talked to him. I say, Dick, you guys go, you go, you go back to the same guys every year. Don't they ever get tired of of of, of you doing it? The same people every year. And but he's such a he's such he's so honest and sincere that people people don't mind giving year after year after year. They have to well, to beat these kind of money. They love them. Yeah, they love them. Everybody loves Dickie V. Well, Doug, Everybody I, I want to thank Dickie you v. so much. Doug, Doug Fernandez has joined us, and Doug, we'll have you on periodically. Obviously, not only to talk about Dick Vitale, but uh, he's in a special class now. I mean, there's there's nobody like him. I mean, you can say what you want to about broadcasting or anything else, part of his career. But for him to have this legacy that you're talking about is just so phenomenal. It, it, nobody can believe it. And, and then, well, listen, Don, I, I'd love to come back, but don't wait too long. Remember, I, I, I'm battling cancer here. so uh, I know. You, sure. that, that, not only you, Dick got it, and he had a, 
He had to go buy it, and you got it two, three years ago, and we've been fighting you going back and forth to the hospital. So continue oh. success with yours, and we'll have you on soon. Well, Clay, I uh, hope to be uh, not a cadaver. I love joining you guys. Anytime you want me on, it was fantastic. I enjoyed it. Thanks, oh, thanks very much. Sure. Mike Fernandez. Take care, guys. Doug Fernandez, well, I'll tell you, one of the super people. And, uh, boy, yeah. what a job. Uh, he worked so closely with Dick and Dick's family on, on that cancer crusade for the Jimmy V. And uh, $12 million, as he said, and, and what he's raised totally over the years is just incredible. Well, we're going to switch to golf right now, a very, very controversial sport. At the moment, a lot of news again today, but we're going to go to Mike Cole down in Philadelphia. Uh, Mike uh, is a PBGA representative, has been for a long period of time, has had over a 1,000 classes of teaching golf. And uh, Mike, first of all, is a PGA member. Uh, now we want to get the federal government in it today uh, uh, with this uh, supposed compromise that they made with leave. Uh, some of your thoughts on that first before we go into some of the golf issues alone. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, always nice to be on the show. Uh, always good to talk the, to you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, so, at this point, you know, everything is speculation and opinion. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll start out by telling you something uh, one of my dearest friends said, who, who's a PGA professional as well. Uh, he said, you know, today I'm half PGA golf professional, not a PGA professional golfer. There you and go. That, there's, there is a distinct difference, and people kind of intertwine the two. Uh, you know, PGA of America, uh, the PGA golf professionals, which, uh, you know, which I am, uh, that, you know, we run the business of golf, we teach, we you know, we do a lot of uh, incentives for uh, charitable organizations and growing the game and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, we're not out there playing for a living. That's the PGA Tour. Uh, and if I were a PGA Tour professional today, I would, I would probably feel slated and offended uh, and but I don't know all the details. Uh, I don't know that anybody does other than Jay Monahan and his, and his closest associates. I'm not sure all the tour players know all the details yet. Um, I don't think there's been much released as any, as far as any documents. Uh, you know, the one thing I heard Rory McIlroy say uh, shortly after the news broke. Uh, in fact, it was right before the the Canadian Open started. Uh, that you know, he said, it, you know, he said, I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked, and you know, personally, I'm, you know, kind of taken aback by the whole thing and, and a bit betrayed. Uh, he said, but I think that was, was the word betrayed. I think they felt yeah. the ones that uh, the one that supported. Uh, the PGA as a whole and criticize the people that jumped from the money. Uh, I think they feel a little bit hurt, not a little bit. I think they feel a lot hurt. Uh, I do give them a lot of credit for saying uh, we're, we're not going to jump on a bandwagon and start screaming and yelling right away until they get all the information in their hands. But they had to feel like they were betrayed. I, I would certainly think so. I mean, here they, 
they sat back and, or not sat back, but stood up and said, no, we're not going to, we're not going to take these ridiculous amounts of money and, uh, you know, turn our backs on our sponsors and, and the tour that has put us where we are at this point, uh, which I, I respect it. I, I, you know, I would have liked. I would like to think I would have taken the same stand. Uh, when somebody starts waving that kind of money in front of you, you don't know. Um, but uh, the mergers, agreements, uh, whatever you want to refer to them as, uh, come together in sports. You know, the the. the NFL and the AFL, you know, came together, and, and it was better for the the, the world of football. Uh, no question about it. Roger, and, you're up. You know. Well, yeah, and we talked about this uh, with Doug Hamilton uh, last week, and the uh, it's it just, uh, what do you think about it? I had brought up, which I had heard about possible government intervention because they do not want to see uh, a Saudi – uh, league, uh, you know, a, a, a Saudi-controlled league in the uh, U.S. What do you think about the, that, uh, or do you have any thoughts about it personally? Well, I mean, you know, it's hard to re- it's hard to remove the you know the the feelings or resentment we all have towards that organization. Uh, it, the bottom line is, you know, the money's going to talk. Right. Uh, and it, from what what we hear at this point is that this new company, if you want to call it that, so to speak, uh, is going to be controlled by the PGA Tour and that Jay Monahan is going to be the CEO. But he's not going to be the chairman. He's going to be the CEO, but he's not going to be the chairman. Right. So, yeah, the bottom line, the money's going to drive the thing. Uh, And and there's no way that the PGA Tour could could battle that uh, in litigation for years down the road. I mean, they would they would eventually, you know, <laughs> have to give in at some point, or you know, be <laughs> they would lose the, the legal balance right. just from. Well, the, as of yesterday, standpoint. Senator Blumenthal, uh, this yesterday afternoon, asked the PGA Tour and LIV Golf for communications and records because uh, he's planning to have. Uh, a complete investigation of the merger and where the money's going to come from and how it's going to be distributed. Uh, so it's it's definitely going to, you know, the United States Senate is definitely going to get involved in it because Blumenthal's already made the statement uh, yesterday that, that he's going to step in. Yeah, I, I just heard that this evening on my way home. Um, so that's I, I that's that's new news to me, but I did I just did hear it about an hour ago. Um, that yeah, and so the U.S. government is going to get involved. The Senate's going to get involved. Um, you know, I guess they're they're trying to get uh, 
the Department of Justice involved. Um, yeah, antitrust, it, I'm sure. Right. Right. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult situation. But like I say, unfortunately, money, money drives pretty much everything. Does it so really? About money. Does it really? Yeah, everything. Well, Mike, let's get to your bail of week because you're, uh, you're a teacher. You're a PBJ, PBJ official. I mean, uh, uh, and have been pro for PGA pro for a long, long period of time in the Philadelphia area. You were head of the district area. Uh, some of your thoughts on uh, the young players coming up, getting more young players interested. My feeling has been over the last eight or nine years that golf, right now, is the steepest is the deepest sport in talent that uh, I have ever seen. I, I would agree. I mean, it's it's incredible uh, the way new players, and I say new players, guy, you know, men or women coming out of college uh, and jumping on their respective tours are are ready to win year one. I mean, they come out of college and they're they're ready to win, and and the Nicholas Palmer even. Beyond that, uh, days th- that didn't happen. It was, you know, they the, the players came out of college and or off of one of the you know satellite tours, and and they they expected it was going to take two or three years to learn how to win. Right. That's not the case. That's not the case anymore. These these young players are coming out of college, and they expect to win. First time they tee it up, uh, and because they've started so young, the competition has been so good, and starting from the time they're you know kids, uh, the the PGA of America has done a remarkable job uh, developing that young talent. You know the programs that are out there now for for the youth. And uh, say right here in the Philadelphia PGA, you know we have a we have what's called the Junior Tour, and they play every. I mean, our our Philadelphia section PGA encompasses the whole eastern part of Pennsylvania. I say eastern from west of west of Harrisburg and out that way, uh, not as far as Pittsburgh, but you know out in that direction all the way. East uh, through Philadelphia, it, it encompasses the entire state of Delaware and and the state of New Jersey from Trenton down to Cape May. Uh, so it's a very large section, and and these kids are playing throughout that entire section. They have they join the PGA Junior Tour and they're playing all these great golf courses throughout the Philadelphia section, and and they're playing very quality competition. Uh, so, so they right. want to compete at, at such a young age. Mike, Mike, let me follow up on that. Uh, I'm just in the process of moving back uh, from Atlanta and I uh, substitute the taught the last couple of years, uh, especially at the uh, one middle school, like this past year, uh, 78 days uh, there alone. And what's amazing is you're exactly right. 
in middle school, they have a competition in golf. And, uh, you know, the student-athletes get called about uh, the school that's out at four. Uh, they're uh, called to uh, report to get on the buses to go to play uh, against other middle schools. So when you're starting at that young age, you're going to have a lot of success. Right, exactly. And we have another, there's another program called PGA Junior League. And these are national, that's a national program, but each section, there's 41 sections in the PGA of America. And the easiest way to think of it is, you know, like the United States of America, but there's 41 separate sections. They, they don't coincide with state boundaries, so to speak, as I just mentioned what the Philadelphia section encompasses. But, and, and then the, there's a section governance of each state uh, or of each, of each section. Well, the national PGA has what, what is known as the PGA Junior League, and it's basically a little league concept for golf, mm-hmm. where the kids go out and play as a team. And some of them, it's a great format because they can play without a lot of pressure, but yet they're being introduced to competition. So right. they play a scramble They play a scramble format, so that it's like a two-man scramble or two-person scramble. Uh, and what we typically do is pair like a – a, a better player with a lesser player, so that hopefully they're always playing from a, a decent, you know, location and that scramble. Mike, uh, let me ask you this: it, Out of all the uh, thousands and thousands of lessons and thousands and thousands of people that you've worked with in the Philadelphia metropolitan area, have you ever personally had one of the players that you felt had this kind of opportunity and this kind of success on the borderline if they wanted to go into the into the pro game? Uh, I've had a couple that I thought had maybe the talent uh, and and possibly not the drive or commitment. Uh, it's it's so difficult. I mean, probably the probably the top talent I ever worked with uh, as as a junior. Uh, is now the head professional at Concord Country Club, you know, right here close by uh, in Concordville, Pennsylvania, is Mike Moses. And I taught him when he was, I taught him when he was a, it was in um, junior high. And he became mm. one of the, he became one of the premier players in, in the Philadelphia PGA. And, and now <laughs> I'm really dating myself, but he he's now one of the top senior players in the Philadelphia PGA. Uh, so, but he was probably the most talented player I ever worked with, and and he had a good work ethic. It's just so hard uh, to get to that level. People don't realize how hard it is. I mean. I, I've, I, we had some really good players. When I was the head pro at Penn Oaks Golf Club in Westchester, we had we had some very good players there. And and some of them thought, well, you know, wow, so-and-so ought to try the tour. <laughs> and it's just because they would go around Penn Oaks and, you know, even par. 
It's like, well, mm-hmm. no, he'd have to go around Penn Oak shooting 62 every day, you know, to have, to have that kind of, you know, chance. So it's it's a lot tougher than people realize. Well, Mike, hey, thank Mike, you, you so the, much uh, for joining us in this segment. Hey, I, I really appreciate it, and we'll try to learn a little bit, at least by phone, of your expertise in this game and uh, your knowledge you. within this game. And I hope you'll come on with us again uh, as we go down toward the middle of the summer and uh, head out toward uh, some of the other big tournaments that are still coming up. Hey, sure, I have a question for Mike. Mike, you have a camp coming up. Yeah. You have a camp for kids coming yes. up, don't you? Like, right, why don't you let our audience know about that? Well, they, they actually start this coming Monday, uh, the 19th, and we have uh, eight eight weeks of camp uh, that each each week is a separate camp uh, and we have it for half dayers and full dayers uh, they can can register on uh, PGA junior camps.com and then uh, and actually it's a, that is a national program as well uh, and they can just Google a location and they'll see uh, where the, the closest camp is great Thanks, oh, Mike. Terrific. Appreciate it. Have a, Thank take you. care, Mike. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And good luck with those camps oh. and the kids. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Always, always a pleasure being on. We'll Thank get you. you. We'll get you again. No question about that. Let's switch back to hockey okay. here momentarily because Tom Lemayne is going to join us right now from Philadelphia. And Tom, of course, has uh, covered almost every sport in Philadelphia between the 76ers, the Flyers, the Eagles, uh, you name it. Uh, Tom LeMay has been a part of it. Uh, he's been on with us many, many times. And, Tommy, first of all, thank you very much for taking some time. And the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, we'll talk about last night's championship game in a second for the Stanley Cup. But the Flyers began last week to uh, to sort of make a little bit of a move to get started looking forward to 24, 23-24. Yeah, they did. Um, I would have rather have seen them uh, – Tell Columbus, uh, you can have Proveroff and keep all the draft picks and just send uh, Johnny Goudreau over, and uh, we'll be happy. <laughs> You've always wanted that, T.O. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, you, know, you, you know, I guess the previous general manager could have said, I don't know how I would have been able to work a deal to get him here. But what I have to believe is when you have the top player in the league, or arguably the top three player in the league, telling you, that he wants to come to your team. He wants to come to your town. He wants to play for the Philadelphia Flyers. You know, when you get that kind of a situation, and he's a homegrown uh, player, right. you have to do everything you can. I don't care what it takes. You have to get him here. And uh, if that was the final, you know, nail in the coffin for the previous general manager, then I guess that would have to be it. But <clears throat> there was no way that they should not have in some way acquired Johnny Goudreau. You know, I mean, you know, the Proveroff thing, and they got the draft picks, and they really picked up a good right-handed big defenseman, uh, Gans. But, um, you know, like I said, you know, facetiously, I guess I said this facetiously, uh, you know, keep all your draft picks and Proveroff, just send Goudreau over here. Roger? <laughs> no, well, I'll tell you, the uh, I'm with you, Tom, and, uh, but I really uh, I'm encouraged about uh, the moves. I think Jonesy's going to do a great job, and Danny Briere, and 
I saw that the uh, woman that uh, was, I guess, what, the CEO of uh, Comcast Spectacore, right. uh, that she has uh, left the company. So I think that's just another sign that the company realizes they've got to turn the flyers around uh, for uh, monetary sake, if nothing else. Well, monetary, I'm glad you mentioned that, because uh, how, how many tickets would Johnny Goudreau have sold? Look look at how many tickets the uh, Chicago Blackhawks have sold, knowing that they're going to get the number one pick in, in right. the upcoming draft. I mean, uh, right. I, I just, um, you know, I, I, as far as the change in the uh, in the administration, uh, what she did was basically off-ice activities uh, to mainly – concerning with uh, things that went on inside the Wells Fargo Center. <clears throat> but, you know, Jonesy, you know, uh, Keith Jones, he's he's been fooling us all along here. You know, he, <laughs> he you know, he always, and I mean, anytime I've talked to him and, and I would ask his opinion about something, he would immediately come up with the answer and, and he would be assertive about it. When I would ask him about a player or what happened during a game or something like that, uh, you know, he said, you're right, Tommy, but here's what happened. And I, boom, and I would listen, um, you know, to uh, to what Jonesy said because he fools you. You know, he has this comical thing about him, but he's a very brilliant man. He is. He is. Well, and, Tom, and what do you we think were... about the triumvirate now? Because uh, the coach is now going to be, as they uh, have printed many times in the paper in recent years, or recent uh, months, uh, that he is now going to be very much involved in, what the other two people do. Well, that, that's the way it should be. I mean, he, uh, he, he's, he's always dealt with what the, the team has provided him with where, wherever he has been. Um, yeah, but that's and, the thing. He, he's not going to be provided this year. He's going to be a part of saying yes or no. I think this guy is going to be a player that's going to be fit into what I want and can play for me. Well, he's, he's shown you that he'll do that. I mean, Look at look at the players he scratched and made them a healthy scratch this year. Uh, top players for the Philadelphia Flyers. He didn't care. You're not playing. I mean, I, that's what I mean, Don. When he doesn't care who he has, if you're not playing the way he wants you to play, and you're you're not uh, putting in ice time the way he thinks you should put in ice time, then you're going to be on the bench, you're, you're, or you're going to be in civilian clothes. So it doesn't matter. Uh, I don't think to. Uh, to him, whether he who who he gets his players, he'll just uh, whoever they are, you'll do you know what he wants John Toro wants you to do, and or else you're not going to be playing. Yeah, I thought that year, his first year this year, I thought he was going to be the the dominant factor that was going to make him really competitive the first year, not necessarily go deep into the playoffs or anything like that. But it didn't happen. Well, there was too much transition going on. Um, you know, when you, you when you lose two top three, actually, three top-line players who did not play at all this year, basically, and, uh, you know, two forwards and, and, the, and the defensemen who they gave up a lot for and just because of uh, health reasons is never going to play hockey again. Uh, but you got Cam Atkinson and uh, Sean Couturier. I mean, those two guys will start in the front line of any team in the National Hockey League. And when they're not in there, I mean – it, it's it's not easy to forget that they didn't play, and it's it's very easy to remember that they will be playing next year. And you know, with the pieces they have and the young, they were bringing up guys left and right, Don, and and some of them I think were up if, with the big club to uh, let the uh, 
let the let the team know what they can do. And uh, I am not I am not uh, doubtful that the Flyers are not that. Well, I'm probably in the uh, outlier on this, but I don't think uh, the Flyers are that far away from uh, first of all from being being in the playoffs because except for the uh, the Jersey Devils, that division's getting old. And, uh, you know, and I, Peter LaViolette coming back. Is there any – what team in the division did he not coach? Is there one? Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it's, the, it's, ama- it's amazing how the coaching carousel continues that way. And, uh, you know, they're – I guess management is afraid to take a chance on somebody outside that they don't know about. So, on and on it goes, you know. Uh, Roger. Who – well, the uh, the Flyers years ago did take a chance, okay, and uh, uh, didn't work out so well. So I guess that's why Bigger get get a uh, an old coach uh, that can teach him new tricks. Maybe that's it, well. Tom. Well, if the if the coach you're thinking about is now the head coach of the Seattle Kraken, is is that who you meant? Yeah, that's who it is. Yeah, that came out of college. Okay, well, and, you know, uh, uh, yeah, Hextall. Is uh, he just need? You know what happened? He got his experience coaching the Flyers. The Flyers. He got his National yep. Hockey League experience coaching the Flyers. Because you know when you come into the the National Hockey League ranks after being a very successful coach in college. I mean, look at the Rangers' original young player, a uh, coach that came in. You're going to get out coached by guys who have been around. But in your second or third year. In the league, whether it's the current team that you were signed for or you move on to another team like Axtall did for uh, the Seattle Kraken. And look what he did out there. I mean, he, he learned, you know, his, uh, he, he, got his, he got his roots king with the Flyers. And uh, all of a sudden he goes to Seattle and uh, look at the Kraken, man, the surprise of the year. Mm-hmm. Talking about well, uh, the year. How about last night's game? What do you, what do you think about uh, – I, I, we had, for the first half hour of the show, we talked about the National Hockey League. And I think Bedman's been, of all the commissioners in all the sports, I mean, I think he's been the leader in, in innovation. I mean, he when they had the expansion, they had players that could play. And, uh, you know, I think he's done a lot of great things, the television contract, the contract with the players, everything he has done – in my view, has been a positive note as a pair, as compared to all the other commissioners of the other sports. I don't think they're doing anything positive. Well, it depends on uh, you know what what sport you're talking about. Um, the you National tell me Football one where they're League, doing a good job. Well, the National Football League has always been. Uh, you know, it's an owner's league. He's doing a great job for the owners. They're making a lot of money. He, well, yeah, <laughs> because he, he's a, he's a lackey. For the owners, you know the right, right. NFL. That's me, exactly the, right. The NFL always stood for the National Fraternity League. You know they're all one and one for all, and it's such a copycat league that you know I was talking. We had a uh, the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation honored Carl Peterson the other night, and I uh, got to talk to Carl and Dick Vermeil, and I, you know Carl was probably the most successful guy behind the scenes as a general manager that I've ever known. A great judge of talent. And I said, Carl, it seems to me that the National Football League is a bunch of copycats. If, if one general manager gets an opinion about a player, that opinion seems to permeate through the whole league. And it doesn't matter if the guy is really a good player or a bad player. 
the opinion that is given by one or two members of the general manager staff of any team, it seems to kind of percolate through the whole whole league, and that's what they do. They they just follow, you know, they're a bunch of lemmings. They really are. But you cannot deny cannot deny the success of the National Football League because they are, as I said, the National Fraternity League. They're all one and one for all. And uh, if a team finishes last, they all feel sorry for them, but they're going to get a lot of money finishing last, mm. and they may, uh, you know, make as much money as a team that goes into the playoffs and eventually to uh, play in the Super Bowl. That's how the NFL is is developed. Now, baseball, uh, they just made some dumb decisions. And I, I if you want to compare uh, commissioners, you know, you're right, Don. I, you know, what what he has done for the National Hockey League is really good. And uh, oh, uh, a, lot, a lot of, lot of, you know, uh, I think uh, there's some, you know, but the owners are the ones who make the rules and the rules are the ones and the rules are what makes the game work or not work. Um, I, I just think the uh, the whole thing about the shootout is a joke. I mean, I, I remember former former co- coach of the Flyers. Uh, he used to he used to call it the uh, well. Now we we didn't score in overtime, so now we go to the uh, talent uh, portion, you know, and the or the skills the skills portion of our game. And I don't think again. I really believe if you and and I think this will happen. I really believe if you extend the overtime another three to five minutes, I think that the games will be decided without having to go to that shootout, and uh, it won't it won't really uh, it, it won't really uh, make its way into a longer overnight uh, time frame where they're going to run into uh, being too late in the evening for a game to conclude. I really believe just add three more minutes maybe or so to the overtime, and I think. Uh, I would guarantee you that at least 80% of the time uh, a decision will be made and a game will be won or lost. Roger? Well, that's a good point, uh, Tom. And uh, uh, Or uh, if they had uh, maybe two uh, overtime uh, quick periods uh, and, and see what happens. But, no, I, I think that's a, that's a good point. And I'm with you. I mean, I, I would rather see that than the uh, shootout. I just uh, – I don't. I don't like it. I don't like the shootout at all. Well, let me throw this no, out that's... there. Two two points. I th- I compare it to the ghost runner. If they want to shorten the game, they want to make sure that you're not going to go more than ten innings or eleven innings by putting the ghost runner out there. That's going to pretty much assure that somebody's going to win the game. And I think that's really comparable to the shootout. That uh, they want to be sure that the game's over. That they, you know, they don't want to save four hours. You know. Uh, if you take a timeout between the end of regulation, go to the overtime, then you take another timeout and you go to the shootout. I mean, you're there for four hours, four four hours plus. That's a long well, time. Well, well, the the, uh, the way the games are being played now, in under three hours, you don't need the ghost runner anymore. You know, get rid of them. I mean, you know, it's uh, well. I think I they mean, will next year, well, but they kept it in this year for whatever reason. I don't know, but well, I think, they, they, well, I, they're they're protecting I, the managers. I mean. Holy smokes! Look at last night's game with the Mets and and, and uh, uh, the Yankees. I mean, what boon you six pitchers in that game last night? Well, I mean, you know, how many pitchers can you have? They got twelve and thirteen on the staff now. Well, that's why they never needed the pitch clock back in the day because you didn't make that many pitching changes. But right. uh, you know, Roger Roger has sat with me in in, in the press box, and uh, I'll say, hey, Roger, look, it's the seventh inning, and this game. 
is already three <laughs> hours long. I'm, right. going, I'm going to invoke. I'm, I'm invoking the Don Henderson rule. <laughs> I have permission to leave this game and head home and be in the arms of my loved one. And I am. I'm not saying anything. I don't care what the. I don't care if it's a tie game or what. It's over three hours. It's only seven minutes. Forty-six minutes in the arms of my bride. <laughs> That's, That's it. it. That's it. You got I, it. I, you know what? I, I hope you forgive us for using that quote many times. But now <laughs> the games, you know, the games are played in under three hours. Uh, right. Under three, under three hours, and that was a, you know, it, it's a baseball should never be uh, subject to a clock wrong. I mean, they 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 they've worked their way into this situation. By okay, I got a guy who's my seventh inning pitcher. I got a guy who's my eighth inning pitcher. And every time you make a pitching change, that adds on to the time of the game. And I and I think that um, you know if you got to be up there ready to if the pitcher's ready to pitch or the hitter's ready to hit, and you got that eight, eight second looming on you, that's it. Move it along, or you got strike one or ball one, considering who the infraction is on. And I. Uh, uh, it is, it's working. And, and to answer your question, Don, I think they maybe wanted to see how this pitch clock worked before they thought about doing away with the ghost runner. We'll, we'll see yeah, what happens. you be right there, Tom. But they just wanted yeah, to try it out. Sense. And I don't think that they, uh, they want to admit too soon that they made a mistake with the ghost runner. So, I, uh, you know, if these games continue to run in the time that they're running so far, um, that would be a you know a good valid reason to uh, to eliminate the ghost runner, which really you know takes away from the nature of the game more than the pitch clock does. No question, Roger. Oh, takes away strategy, you know, with the uh, ghost runner, the uh, you know the, uh, the way it was in the old in the old days before, and the ghost runner was brought in because of COVID, wasn't it? A couple you know in the nineteen in twenty twenty. I thought that's the for when they did it when they had the short gotcha. season, and yeah. uh, but that's over. What, so like, whatever, let's move yeah, forward. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, it was a bad idea. Well, let's let Tommy get the last sentence in here. Tom, uh, first of all, a quick evaluation before we go to Doug Hamilton, who's coming up next. Uh, give me an idea of uh, of your assessment of the Phillies to date. Well, they're. Uh, you know, I think that World Baseball Classic had had impacts on a lot of players, and it's 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 showing up in the way teams are have uh, have played so far. But as far as the Phillies go, I mean, uh, I I just was waiting for uh, you know the two players uh, that that weren't you know providing what they should have been providing, at, uh, JT Realmuto and uh, and Trey Turner, and all of a sudden they have found their way. And uh, that means the Phillies are on their way. I just think there's too much power on that team. Uh, they've been able to succeed without the East Hoskins. Uh, they've found players who can uh, fill the bill at first base. Um, I, I always had the greatest confidence in that in the third baseman, the big, tall third baseman. They have that. He's he's a genuine. He's the real deal. Bomb. And, bomb. Uh, and the. And, yeah, yeah, Alec Baum, and they're and they're strong up the middle, Don. You know, you're up the middle. You, you, when <laughs> second base, is there any better shortstop or second base combination that the Phillies have right now? And is there any better catcher in baseball right now? And to me, that's always been the core of a solid team, a successful team. 
and they're finding their way through center field. I think they stole that guy from the California Los Angeles Angels. He is, uh, you know, he's turning. Yeah, he's turning out to be a a pretty good center fielder. He plays good defense, and he's starting to hit. And he's he's a good, you know, a left-handed power. And I, uh, you know, so they have made big strides up the middle, and those guys are now producing. And I don't care if the Phillies are six, seven, whatever games behind they are. They're going, they're going to overcome that, as they did late in the season, and maybe they won't have to wait this long this year because, as, as Yogi Berra always said, it's getting late early. And well, it's hard. we're getting late right after the next guest. But, Tommy, as always, thank you very, very much. And if they get a little more pitching, you may be right. If they don't get a little more pitching, I think they're in a lot of trouble. But thank you very, very much. We'll do it again, Tom, Take very care, soon. Tom. All right, guys. Well, See you. Take care. Doug Hamilton on the line right now, and uh, we're talking about baseball. We're going to jump away from his golf, PGA professional. Always talks golf with us, Abby, but we're going to talk a little Baltimore Oriole baseball because uh, you got to be a little happy the Orioles with a little bit of a slump as they're coming back. Well, we, you know, we, we always talk about the cycles of baseball, whether it's, you know, pitchers, hitters, teams, wins, losses, RBIs, hits, etc. And, um, you know, they had a semi-rough road trip uh, to San Francisco and Milwaukee and finished 3-3 three and three, and then, you know, have since come back home and um, played some better baseball. So, um, yeah, fun to watch. Um, they last, last check I saw they were losing 2 nothing here. I think it was the eighth inning. I don't know what happened yeah. after that. But, um, you know, they look a lot better. Roger? 42 and I think they're at 42 and 24. Right, Doug? Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were, I mean, they're in the, the toughest division in baseball um, without question. You know, the, the last place team, which is the Red Sox, would likely be first place in three or three or four of the other divisions. Um, you know, so night in, night out, it's, you know, it's tough. I mean, you know, you got uh, playing at home. I mean, they they swept the, uh, the Royals, which they likely should have. And, uh, you know, they, Looks pretty good last night against uh, the Blue Jays, and unfortunately they're losing here tonight. Um, but they're playing good. They're playing good baseball. Um, you know their pitchers are, are throwing pretty well. Uh, the back end of their bullpen looks looks a little better. And last night it was nice to see them score a bunch of runs. So um, you know, and they're they're also doing this without Mullins in the lineup is on the injured list. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle is on the injured list. Um, you know, so they've had some other players step up and, and fill some different roles. Ryan O'Hearn uh, looks really good at, at the plate. Adam Frazier's played pretty well. Um, you know, Gunnar Henderson was hitting 196 and has raised his average to nearly 250. So he's been – he was a player of the week uh, last week, I think, and he's looked really good at the plate. Hopefully he's uh, going to maintain that streak as, as they move forward. But, um, you know, again, I still think we're – a piece or two short from a competitive, you know, situation, uh, whether it's a bullpen arm or a starting pitcher or maybe it's somebody they call up from the minor leagues as a hitter. Um, I'm not sure, uh, but they have a good nucleus to move forward with. Well, uh, Henderson got off to a little bit of a slow start. He was only hitting around 205 or 208, something like that. Hit a couple home runs the other night, a big contributor to, to a big win. Uh and I know one thing uh just say at the top of the show or at the top of your uh, portion of the show, 
Uh, he did a terrific job on the PGA last week and explaining to and a number of people Absolutely. talked about it during the week with me about they didn't understand all the things that you were talking about. And I said, listen, I never heard that before. So uh, I thank Doug for doing right. it and spending the so amount of time that here, he did. Don. We all Pardon? learned last yeah. week. No, we, yeah, we all absolutely. learned. It was great. Absolutely. Yeah. And now uh, I just want to, I, I don't want to, I want I don't want to harbor on what's going on with leaving with the PGA, but it, it seems to me that uh, it's a long way from being settled. Uh, we said it uh, yeah. A couple of segments back in the program I mean, that the Senate's going to get in there now. Uh, Blumenthal's already yeah. called the uh, meetings and so forth. Uh, you know, and, and I, I commend it and we'll do it again when you're on, uh, Rory, for saying, I'm not going to talk about it. When, when it I'm not, there's nothing right. I want to talk about right now. There's nothing to say. Right. And I think, I think that's the only way you can really address it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, when this deal was made, um, it was a, a backroom kind of a deal between uh, a couple different people. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, you're going to have the, the government intervene at some point here as they as they look this over. And, and you talk about who knows what. What are we talking about? Monopolies, antitrust. I mean, what, what are we what are we really talking about? Where is this money um, coming from? Of, well, what kind of money are we talking right. here? Billions, you know. Um, yeah. You know, that's. That's the concept with with the Saudi guy that's in charge of that of that fund that was enormous. I mean, enormous amounts of money. You know, and where's that going to go? Where did he get it from? How are they going to use it? You know, all these different questions. You know, um, I mean, well, you, you know, it's kind of ticks me off, I guess, a little bit. You know, when you had the whole steroid concept, we had people on Capitol Hill that were sticking their their paws in all that stuff. I mean, you know. If I could get a second, I mean, we, well, I mean, look, we, we can send hundreds of millions of dollars to Ukraine, you know, to help them fight their war. But now we're going to question where money's coming from for a PGA tour event. Right. So we have all this time in our life to do what we have all this, you know, concept, you know, from money and where's it coming and where's it going when they're not accountable for themselves and how they spend it. Right. So maybe somebody should oversee them when it comes to writing checks. Roger. Yeah, the Mets uh, just uh, scored. They had broken up uh, Cole's no-hitter, and Verlander was also uh, tossing a no-hitter. And uh, the Mets just uh, scored uh, on a couple of doubles with two outs. Double off the right uh, field fence. Yeah. And uh, so that's a really uh, great game to watch uh, tonight, no doubt about it. But, no, Doug, I I agree with you. Uh, I mean – where we spend money, our, our taxpayers' money, uh, is really and, – and then get involved in something that does not really affect our tax paper, uh, taxpayers' money, I, I agree with you. Right. It's all – it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, to your point, you know, Don, from what we talked about, you know, last week in regard to PGA professionals and, um, you know, kind of what – what they do and where they spend their time and, and all these different things. I mean, that's the common misnomer amongst most people is that they don't really understand what it is that we do for a living, you know, and everybody oh, absolutely. Says, well, gosh, you know, you're a PGA tour, you know, player. No, I'm, I'm not a PGA tour. I'm a PGA tour. I'm a PGA member, but there's different classifications. There's 23, I think, different classifications of what you can be, whether it's a head golf professional or an assistant a general manager, I mean, you can be involved in 
sports talk radio or media. I mean, there's a bunch of different coach. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do as a PGA member to, you know, change your classification to fit it is what your role is within that, that hierarchy. Uh, so, you know, the rigors that we go through to get that opportunity and then what we do on the back end of that when it comes, I mean, I'm telling you right now, you know, people like Roy McIlroy would rather miss three foot putts than have to deal with some of the memberships I had to deal with. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Well, you know, it's it's whenever you're involved in something like that and you get uh, members, uh, you know, wealthy, big egos, I dealt with it in industry yep. and, uh, that's exactly uh, what you have to face, and you just have to, uh, uh, you know, live with it, learn uh, to accept it, and uh, that's about it. I mean, uh, we had a uh, gentleman on earlier who uh, does a lot of uh, coaching and teaching uh, up in uh, in uh, Delaware and uh, the uh, Delaware, Pennsylvania yeah. border area, and. Uh, and he he had yeah. a great uh, Frank. What what did Mike uh, say? He'd rather be a, PG, a PGA uh, professional than a PGA player. Correct? Isn't that what right. he said? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think that says it, Doug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's part of the role that you live. I mean, you know, you talk about. PGA Tour members, and, and even the people say, well, okay, well, you know, that guy wins a tournament and he makes all this money. Okay, well, what do you think? I mean, you don't think he, you know, has to spend time away from his family. You don't think he has to travel. You don't think that he has to work on his game a number of hours. You don't think that he has to put in the work in the gym and, and you know, from a diet standpoint and, you know, do all these other things that they do, you know, charitable Personal work, trainers. trainers, all these things. Yeah, all that. a lot of I mean, expenses, a lot of you know, personal expenses. People don't understand what that's like. I mean, you know, you, you talk about Major League Baseball players and, and their efforts to get to the major leagues. You think they like spending time on buses, eating fast food, living in hotels and run-down dump cities that they play baseball games in, you know, away from their families and making nothing, you know? So, you know, that's that's what people don't see. They think the end justifies the means in many cases, and that may not be true. Hmm? Roger? Well, you know, the, the, another uh, point, and it's like that in, in uh, a lot of sports. Uh, I, uh, I uh, met a uh, woman whose husband uh, is the uh, uh, is the uh, chef uh, for a former NBA player. And you know, when you think about that, because just like Tom Brady, look at all the specialists that he dealt with uh, for his diet yeah. and regimen and for liquid. Uh, that he t- takes, that all costs a lot of money. So they're making a lot of money, yeah. but they're also spending a lot of money uh, to keep themselves in shape uh, to uh, produce uh, to that level. No doubt about it. Absolutely. Yeah. They you know, know, maybe you know more. Maybe maybe so. you know more about it than I do. But uh, I was been really very very interested in this week's tournament for a couple of reasons. Number one, the location. Uh, this country club yep. has never, uh, in any way, invited a th- uh, you know like an open or anything like that to be played on their course in Los Angeles. Number two, yep. some of the greatest talent in Los Angeles live on the on the uh, edges of that golf course, and yet none of them are yep. allowed to be members of the golf course. They won't take any movie right. actors. They won't take any directors. They won't take any producers. 
they, they uh, no one. This must be. I, I did not know that this was this uh, exclusive a country club, and how they ever yeah. allowed it. It's only it's only high end corporate business people that are members of this club. Nobody else. Right. And how they ever decided and got them to concede and play this tournament there. Do you right. do you know anything about? I know nothing about it except what I've read this week. Yeah, no, they there was some pieces that were done that kind of explained it. Unfortunately, I I didn't hear them, see them, follow them. Big Crosby um, lives up right there. I mean, Big Crosby lived there. He couldn't play. Right, he couldn't, I mean, he couldn't be a member. You, well, that's what I mean. You have country clubs all over America that are exclusive in their own right. You know, some of them don't allow women. Some of them don't allow, you know, certain, you know, as you said, movie stars, actors, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, and, and those country clubs get to set the rules. They get to do what they want to do, and apparently they can survive on what it is that they have, and that's the exclusive nature of, of doing that. So I'll tell you, the um, best one I saw this week, uh, Scott tried to uh, – got to be an old time to remember when Scott was in the movies. But anyway, uh, Randolph Scott was – Randolph a, Scott. Was, yeah, he was, in, he was in the movies. It made a lot of – and he he tried to join, and they said, well, we we don't take any, any movie people whatsoever – he said, well, I wasn't in the movies. And they said to him, what do you mean you weren't in the movies? Did you ever see any of the movies? Ever see any of my movies? I wasn't any good. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> he made 50 movies. He said, I wasn't any good in any of them. <laughs> right. But they still didn't let him in. <laughs> well, yeah. you know what I, I think mean, that a- is? That they don't need to have controversy. I mean, they may have it, but not not where you have a lot of uh, uh, well-known people that are going to start saying things and everything. Right. Uh, well, Roger, I'll tell you, I'm really smart. looking forward to seeing the course. I, you know, I, I mean, it's right there, right in the middle of, of L.A., right by UCLA, and, and uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I never never heard of it. I've never heard anything about this course. Yeah. Speaking about uh, that real quick, I just found a book when I was packing and everything about the UCLA championships, and it was uh, autographed to me by John Wood. I got it autographed the night I interviewed him when I was at a UCLA game. I'll never forget it. One of the greatest. One of the greatest. Not the greatest, one of the greatest. Yeah, absolutely. That's the keeper. Yeah, that hey, is. You're right. Uh, Doug, you have a, uh, a teaching uh, setup going on right now. Is there any way we can help you with uh, uh, getting that the uh, getting that word out that, that you're available and where you're available? Yeah, I mean, I could certainly send you my my contact information. Um, you know, so that people could could look me up. And and as we talked, uh, as I came on, I was there's so there's there's nine. There's nine different properties that are a part of this teaching academy that I that I've recently joined, and you know, you you guys knew me as you know Doug, the the head golf professional and everything else, and I think that you know over the course of time, a lot of that political kind of arena was a was a tremendous turnoff for me, and I've made the decision to uh, relocate, if you will, in terms of my PGA status. Uh, so I changed mm-hmm. to what they call a teaching professional. So so Mike Cole and I, you know, briefly chatted and talked to some other people. And, and I think 
it's it's enhanced the quality of my life with regard to less less travel in general, um, but also less political, less red tape. Um, you know, and I think that more family time and, and all these really wonderful concepts that I've never really experienced being in that country club world have been a nice change for me um, and my family. So I'd be happy to get you my information. I don't know uh, what, what the listening base uh, of individuals that, that listen to uh, this program or follow it uh, would be, but, you know, I'm in a pretty hot spot now with uh, Montgomery County um, in terms of, of, of the teaching concept, which, which pulls from, you know, mostly the D.C. area. Um, I'm out kind of in that Frederick area. So, I mean, I've got a pretty big purview of, of area that I can cover, and, and I'm trying to cast that net as wide as I can to build my book as big as I can, um, you know, and, um, you know, no different than you'd see, a, you know, a, a salesperson that's on commission or, um, you know, a insurance person or whatever that has to build their client base and then, you know, then they have something built in pretty good there. So that's that's kind of where I am with that. Um, you know, and it's, you know, Frank, you and I have talked about this at length uh, over the course of time, and, and, you know, I think it was a wise decision for me to make in terms of the quality of my life. Yep. Yep. Well, well send all the information to Frank, and if we can, uh, we can distribute some of it, uh, not just on the program, but in some of the things that we do, uh, we'll certainly be very, very happy to do that. No question about it, Doug. Yeah. Doug, do you have a so website, Doug? Do you have a website? You, I mean, I, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll put you in touch. I'll put Frank actually in touch with a way that people can find me. It's so there's, a, there's a platform that they use called Thrive Sports, T-H-R-I-V, um, and the Montgomery County Revenue Authority is basically the parent of you know the uh, conglomeration that I work for, um, and I teach at two or three different places, and I'm getting ready to start a lot of junior camps next week. Probably seven of the next eight weeks, I'll be involved in junior golf and, and doing some different things uh, with them. Um, so, though, yeah, there's a there's a pretty easy way to find me and to book lessons and to have people. I mean, I have a nice bio on there. And um, to your point, you know, Don, we were talking about PGA professional. You know what I did over the winter to kind of re-educate myself from a teaching standpoint. Then I'm pretty happy to be what they call a certified professional, which is one step lower than that of the master professional, which is the top is the, that's the top of the food chain in PGA of America. So um, real close, you know, to, to that ranking, um, whether I pursue that or not, I don't know. It's a, it's pretty time, you know, uh, laborious to, to get to that point. Um, but I'm pretty happy with where I am and, and what I've done to get there. Uh, so yeah, I'll be happy to get you guys in touch with ways that people can find me and, and look me up for lessons. Terrific. But before we run out of time, how about the Ravens? Uh, what do you, give us a little update on. I know you not only keep your hand on the uh, on the Orioles, but yeah. you also keep your fingers on the, on the Ravens. What do we got? Sure. Well, you got a couple of days of mandatory mini camps uh, that are that are happening right now. Um, you know, trying to install the new offense from the coordinator, uh, getting Lamar Jackson on the same page as some of his receivers. Uh, you know, going through some of these drills to find uh, positions that. You know, left left guard is a position of interest for a lot of people because there's a, a fairly big um, tryout for that spot. Um, you know, you've got a whole basically brand new room of receivers. Um, you know, and some defensive concepts that they're going to talk about uh, year two with the defensive coordinator that started last year, and 
they hired a, a guy named Chuck Smith to come in and, and provide some juice with some pass rush. And, you know, it's got David Ajabo, who didn't really play a lot last year, Adafi Owe, who is underproduced being a first-round draft pick um, comparative to Sachs. Um, you've got a lot of different Kyle Hamilton, who's now going to take over a full-time role after trading Chuck Clark. Um, things that are going on with the Ravens, and I think they're going to utilize these couple days to get familiar with each other, and then parlay that into a, hopefully a nice mini camp. Um, you know, once we get to that, you know, July-August time frame. Roger. Well, the uh, just getting back to the uh, junior, uh, we were talking to Mike earlier, and uh, he mentioned about the next. Uh, uh, what six seven weeks and uh, so you're involved yeah. in that same uh, junior program and that's that's really uh, good to yeah. hear and you're ju- you're in a different area his is more in Pennsylvania uh, and New Jersey and yeah. yours is more down in Montgomery County for people around the country yeah. that don't know where Montgomery County is one of the richest counties in the country yeah. uh, suburban Maryland yeah, right. uh, b- bordering uh, DC so. Uh, that's great. Yeah. You really oh, yeah. expanded, Doug. Terrific. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Um, you know, this is going to give me a chance to, you know, I just, I was telling Frank, I finished up with a ladies' clinic uh, tonight. It was a six-week program. I actually took them out on the course to play a hole or two to just walk them through some different things. And, you know, we had a pretty good time. And I think I touched, you know, probably 13 different people that have never really played golf before and turned them into people who, you know, may have the opportunity to do so. And I've given them a, a good resource and toolbox to be able to play in whether it's corporate events that they do for their work uh, or, or whatever to make uh, basically bilingual, if you will, in terms of knowing etiquette and some of the things to do and not do on golf course so they can compete with, uh, you know, the men in their in their office space. And they also talk about uh, one thing that you've talked about over the years uh, that we've been with you. And that is trying to build the game, build the game, build the game, because uh, yep. it is an expensive game. Uh, let's face it. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. there, there, there are reasons that everybody can't play. Uh, they try now with uh, all the different programs to make clubs available, to make balls available, to make courses time available. But it's not easy. Yep. No. Well, I mean, look, even Only the one that uh, costs more if you have kids is ice hockey. Because you can yeah. yeah. You know, you talk to any parent, that's what they'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, you got to get ice time. And, and that's the same that's as trying, the, to, get, that's trying, to, trying to get on a course to play. Uh, you know, they'll make it available for, uh, you know, say uh, uh, in Montgomery County and, and uh, where Doug's talking about, you know, if the schools would make, uh, you know, one day a week or two days a week kids available so that you could uh, – you know, they could play without having to worry about pay for anything. Why, uh, that'd yeah. be a tremendous boost for youngsters. Hey, Doug, you know, well, since I, it is I, Montgomery I, County, are you at the Congressional? No, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I don't. I'm still in, you know, I'm, I'm not. Good answer, Doug, because we're out of time. Um, we're out of time. Quick answer. Yep. Good. Yep. No, I'm not down that far. As far as I would go would be Falls Road, which is Potomac. Okay, <laughs> great. Okay. Doug, thank you very much. Thanks to all our guests tonight. A lot of information across the line away. Uh, just a lot of fun doing this show always. Roger, glad to have you back in Philadelphia. Frank, another great job at the helm. Our director, our producer, our everything. Frank Carroll, you got it. Take care, Thanks, Commander. Man. God bless.
Well, th- yeah, well, thank everybody for being on tonight. We really appreciate it. And, uh, you guys who filled in like Tom Lemay, you know, last night, uh, we really appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, these programs are brought to you each and every night of the week in grateful appreciation. The men within the United States Armed Forces, the men and the police and fire services. When you're out there and you see somebody in uniform, please take the time to say hello, shake their hand, or let them know that you know they're there. These are guys that are running into danger when you're running away. These programs are dedicated to those who lost their lives in the line of duty. Deputy Robert Anthony Carroll, Patrolman Jeffrey Polkett, Patrolman Jeffrey Curtis, sorry, David Curtis, Patrolman Jeffrey Yazwood, Sergeant Thomas Badinger, Detective Randy Bell, Detective Ricky Childers, San Diego Officer Mike Henley, Sergeant Tom Wilson, Charlotte County Sheriff's Department, Patrolman Charlie Condit, Tarpon Springs Police Department, Deputy Chief Mike Godwin, Philadelphia Fire Department. Lieutenant Joyce Craig Lewis, Philadelphia Fire Department. <clears throat> Sergeant James O'Connor, Philadelphia Police Department. Sergeant Chris Levesque, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Department. Patrolman Notwell Crispin, Lakeland PD. Lieutenant Joe Zerber, Newcastle County Police. Deputy Josh Z- Myers, Nassau County Sheriff's Department. Captain Matt Letourneau, Philadelphia Fire Department. Captain Chris Leach, Wilmington Fire Department. Captain uh, Lieutenant Arda Hope, Wilmington Fire Department. Lieutenant Jerry Ficus, Wilmington Fire Department. Trooper Chelsea Richards, Florida Highway Patrol. Trooper Joe Bullock, Florida Highway Patrol. Chief Al Hogle, Long Road Police Department. Chief Jimmy Ford, Wilmington Fire Department. <clears throat> Pinellas County Deputy Mike Hargrove. Deputy Blaine Lane, Polk County Sheriff's Department. Deputy Chris Meyer, Polk County Sheriff's Department. Sergeant Christopher Fitzgerald, Philadelphia Sheriff's Department. Temple University Police Department. My brothers and sisters, although you may be 10-7 at this point in time, and sometime will be 10-10 at the table of the Lord. Until that time, may the rose lights up to meet you. May the winds be always at your back. May the rains fall softly on your fields and the sunshine lightly on your face. Until we meet again, may the good Lord keep you and your family always in the hollow of his hand. Good night, God bless, and have a great week.
Thank you. 